All right, so if you have your Bibles here, turn with me to the book of Colossians. If you're in the New Testament and you've got one of these kind of paper, um, kind of Stone Age Bibles, uh, just go Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians, Colossians. You'll find it there, about halfway through your New Testament. Otherwise, go onto to version free Bible app and just find Colossians in the New Testament and just press 1 and the next one you're going to press is 1 because we're going to be Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. See, something that we kind of know we need to be doing as Christians, and even if you're not a Christian here this morning, first of all, we're so glad that you're here, but if you're not a Christian here this morning, even you would know that Christians kind of have this a bit of an obligation, a bit of a responsibility to read the Bible. But I know that so many of you have tried to start reading the Bible, have found it hard, and have moved on. And have kind of stuck around, you know, Facebook memes and nice little sunsets and a verse here and there. And that's kind of how you engage with the Bible. Some of you maybe started in Genesis and you're like, oh, this is awesome. I know all these stories. And then you got to Leviticus and laws about different clothing and food we can and cannot eat. And you're like, I don't know what I'm doing here. So you close the Bible and move on. Whereas when we did our last series, and there it is on the, on the drop down over there, is we recognize right from the outset, if we're going to grow if we're going to grow in fruitfulness, if we're going to grow in mission, if we're going to grow in our, uh, in our height and in our strength and in our breath, we need to put our roots down. And ultimately, we need to be rooted in Christ. And if you remember that message, part of what that means is we need to be rooted in His words. Jesus says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, my words need to remain in you. So part of putting our, our, our branches out and part of wanting to grow up is actually needing to put our roots down into the words of God. And so what we're going to be doing in the book of Colossians is going through verse by verse through this book. Helping you guys just uh, uh, kind of have a bit of a, an overview of this book and trying to get God's words in you, challenging you guys to maybe uh, memorize some verses. If you're in a life group, you see on a Sunday, you can't really uh, stop in the middle and say, hey, Steve, I didn't really get what you meant there. But on a Wednesday, you can. Uh, I didn't understand, Steve. Maybe you're not off doing the sermon and I see you. Uh, on, on a Wednesday, you can catch up with the rest and you can ask questions and then really support one another, not just how do we grow in knowledge, but how do we apply this into our lives with a, a set of friends around us, strengthening us in that. So if we look after our roots, the fruits will come and, and we hope that the book of Colossians is going to help us do that. But the next question is, out of all the books in the Bible, why the book of Colossians? Well, here's something that I'm sure every single one of you can recognize. We no longer live in a Christian environment, in a Christian culture. Where there used to be, maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, a greater sense of moral agreement a greater sense of, oh, you know, a Christian is kind of, you know, it's kind of the truth. That's what we do on a Sunday. Uh, there's no sport. There's no, you know, booze. There's no stores open on a Sunday. No, uh, so that's what's kind of agreed upon. Whereas these days, not only is culture becoming extre- um, increasingly non-Christian, but it is becoming increasingly anti-Christian. So the question for you and me is, how do we live out our faith in that kind of environment? Which is why we're looking at the book of Colossians. 
Colossi, uh, so it's not Paul just saying, oh, to the Colossians. No, there was a real city in, in the, what is known as modern-day Turkey today. And uh, it's a Roman city filled with a whole lot of temples and shrines. There was a church meeting there. So Paul was writing to the church meeting at Colossi. Uh, by the way, Paul didn't plant this church. A guy called Epaphras did. And it also seems that they were meeting in the home of Philemon. Remember last year we spoke about Philemon. So that's kind of how it all comes together. But Colossi being a Roman city would have had lots of temples, lots of shrines. And the way Rome does religion is kind of build your burger. Uh, so just pick your God. There, there's hundreds, if not thousands of gods out there. Pick the God that works for you. Pick the God that you like. Just as long as you don't worship a God that is the only way. Other than that, pick your God. And, and, and what Paul started realizing was in this church, yes, they were worshiping Jesus, but they were also in this religious climate and this philosophical climate where they were being influenced by these other ideas. So they kind of adopted this Jesus and approach. Jesus and extra rituals. Jesus and maybe a little bit of this God. Jesus and maybe a little bit of this philosophy. And Paul is saying, here you are in a pagan culture. We cannot adopt that approach. We're going to help you become fully alive to Christ so you can shine in a different way in this culture. And don't we have the same problems though? Aren't we here as the church and, and man, we're surrounded by challenging philosophies and, and multiple types of worship and not just religious worship, but worship of things like money, sex and power and these kinds of things. And we kind of take the things we like about those things and we add a little bit of Jesus into them. Or maybe you have a lot of Jesus and add a little bit of this into them. And again, like a build your burger type of approach to religion. And I think what Colossians is going to help us do is help us become fully alive to the things that Christ has for us. And in that way, live compelling lives out there in the world. But not only is our challenge, uh, uh, the, the challenge of a non-Christian or even an anti-Christian culture, but sometimes culture is looking in at the church saying, I don't like what I see. All right, if, if that's what you call being a Christian, if that's what you call church, I don't want any part of that. And, and we understand that uh, we're a bunch of sinners that we're just kind of walking together towards Christ and hopefully we're maturing along the way. The world doesn't always understand that. But nonetheless, we need to figure out how can we live compelling lives, irresistible lives. As I was thinking about kind of living in two different cultures and today's sermon, I thought about our family's favorite Christmas movie. Um, and in truth, it is not our family's favorite Christian, uh, Christmas movie. It is Bianca and my favorite Christmas movie. Uh, but in time, we will brainwash our kids and it will become theirs too. But it is the movie Elf with Will Ferrell. Now, I'm not usually a big Will Ferrell fan, but in the movie Elf, somehow I enjoy what he's doing there. Uh, so if you don't know the story, Will Ferrell uh, kind of grows up with this little baby. He's uh, living in the North Pole with Santa's little elves, and he grows up thinking he's an elf. But it doesn't take too long for him to kind of outgrow all of his peers. They're all about this size, and Will Ferrell lands up being like the six foot three elf, thinking he's an elf, squashed into their little desks. And it's quite apparent that he's not like everybody else. I mean, he's six three, he's, he's clumsy, he's bumpy, into things. He can't make toys as fast as everybody else. And he kind of knows something's up. He knows something's different, but he doesn't know how, what to do about it until he gets given the truth. You're not an elf. You're a human. So Will Ferrell decides, well, he's going to go down to New York City where his dad is, and he's going to find out what it means to be a human and connect with his father. 
But the problem is, now he knows he's a human. He just doesn't know how to live out as a human. All he knows is elf. So the six foot three guy dressed in this green elf suit is walking around New York City and he's totally amazed by all these things that he's seeing and doesn't know how to fit in. And again, he's sticking out like a sore thumb. And, and, and that's where all the comedy comes in, which is why it's our favorite Christmas movie. And as you can expect, as movies go, uh, he finds his dad and they save the world. So um, <laughs> sorry to kind of ruin it for you there. But I think that is the same challenge for us. There's this new thing happening in us. There's this new identity that's being forged in us. And we go to this new world, this world out there, but we don't always know how to live lives consistent out there with who we are becoming. Scott Sauls, who wrote a book called Irresistible Faith, he says, the world thirsts for a different kind of neighbor. Not the kind who deny their fellow man, take up their comforts and follow their dreams, but the kind who deny themselves, take up their crosses and follow Jesus in his mission of loving a weary world to life. And I believe the book of Colossians is going to help us do that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. So guys, that's the path that we set on for the next few months. I don't know how long it's going to take us to go verse by verse through this book, but I really am trusting God to put our roots down in Him so that we can become fully alive to Him. So let's read together. Colossians chapter 1. Paul is writing, by the way, he's writing from prison. It's always worthwhile having that at the back of our mind. So he says these words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, kind of co-writing with Timothy, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Pretty standard Greek opening part of the letter, pretty standard way that Paul does it as well. Moving into verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. I've just come to know Paul, not just this fiery theologian, but this loving pastor who prays for his church. When we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith, they're living this faith which is radically attractive and radically irresistible. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. And that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras. This is who planted the church. Our dear fellow servants, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And who also told us of your love in the spirits. Now, when Craig preached on reaching out in truth and love a number of weeks ago, he used the second half of these passages uh, uh, to express uh, the nature of that sermon. So he's already, in many ways, unpacked those verses. So we're going to spend more of our time this morning looking at the first half of those verses today. Now... um, I was working in my personal time through the book of Colossians about this time last year. Um, I, I don't know if this is going to help any of you just the way I do it. If any of you want to maybe take a few hints from this and maybe do this at home, uh, what I had been doing, I kind of change things up sometimes, but what I had been doing for a number of years was just going through some of the New Testament books verse by verse, kind of two, three verses at a time. And the way I do it, I sit down in my office, I, I'm 
just privileged to have an outside quiet space. I sit down in my office and I, I just submit myself to God and say, God, I, I come before your presence. I, I thank you that I'm your son and I, I thank you that you love me in Christ. And, and Lord, I thank you that you give me your spirit, you give me your power. And now, Lord, help me, help me understand your word. Speak to me, may I hear your voice. Allow your spirit to help my spirit see you, to hear you and to engage with you through your word here. And then I read, and I, I, I read out loud. Someone once said, if you want to hear the voice of, the voice of God, read out loud. Uh, so that's what I do. I read out loud. I'll read several times over. I always have a journal op- open. I, I never used to. Um, but what I'll do is I'll start saying, well, Lord, what does this text mean? So I don't start off with, well, what does the text mean to me? making it subjective. No, what is the objective meaning of the text? There was an author. In this case, Paul wrote something down. He had something in mind. We can access that by studying the words that we have in front of us. So I generally just start over there, starting with some of the more obvious statements. And the more that I write, the more I'm kind of looking in and seeing a bit more detail. And then I transition from some of the more objective study of the text to moving into devotional space. Lord, what are you saying to me now? Now that I've got a better understanding of what's going on in your word, what are you wanting me to take notice of? And and it doesn't matter where I go from there. I'm just anywhere where I feel like God may be speaking, I just write that down and write that down and, and very quickly able to kind of fill a number of lines, maybe a number of pages with what I believe God is saying to me. Then what I do is I, I pray through the text. I pray through where I believe God is leading me and Lord, let your kingdom come. If this is what your will looks like in my life, may your kingdom come and I, and I go from there. So I was doing that. I started in Galatians. Ephesians, Philippians, and just went on to Colossians. Nothing spiritual there, just went on to the next book. And as I said, about this time last year, got to Colossians chapter one. And and I was doing this process. And and as I was uh, kind of submitting myself to the words and reading words that in many ways are familiar to me, as I started praying through them and journaling, three words jumped out at me. I, I mean, jumped out at me. So I'm going to reread from verse 3 to 5, and I'm going to emphasize that the words I want you to notice. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, that you've already heard about, in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. The words that jumped out to me were faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. This wasn't the first time this had, this had happened to me. Uh, I, I saw it in a number of other books in the New Testament, but I started to realize that for Paul, this was a massive thing. Faith, hope, and love. That may sound familiar to many of you here this morning. Um, there's probably one of the most famous chapters in the book of the New Testament. Even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard, you know, love is patience and love is kind and, and love does not envy and does not boast. And maybe you've heard that at a wedding. Now, the context of that is Paul is writing to another church, a church in a city called Corinth. And he's describing what it means to be the body, what it means to be members of that body, what it means to serve together. And he's kind of anticipating this is going to be hard work, being the body and being up close to one another. So then he gives us a chapter on love. And in this chapter on love, he speaks about spiritual gifts and he speaks about giving our body to the flames. He speaks about giving all we have to the poor. He speaks about prophesying and healing. And then he says, now, all these awesome things are going to go when Christ returns. Because then we'll have no need of healing. We'll have no need of wisdom. We'll have no need of knowledge because we will know him in full. But then he says these famous words. 
1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. But these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Now, I'd heard that verse dozens of times before, if not hundreds of times. However, what I had not seen before is how it permeates so much of Paul's writings where he's saying at the core of our faith should be these three words, faith, hope, and love. Comes up so many times and comes up so clearly here in the book of Colossians. So I started thinking to myself, well, wow, for Paul, this really ought to be the center of our faith, faith, hope, and love, faith, hope, and love. So I was thinking, well, well, what are kind of, in the Christian world, in the church world, what are competing centers? Now, for many people, the center of our faith, meaning what does it look like to be a Christian? For many, it's morality. You do the right things. For many people, it's doctrine. You believe the right things. For many, it's, no, it's church attendance. Just go to church and then you're it and you're in. For many, it's it's worship or spiritual gifts. And there's a whole lot of senses and things that we're passionate about. Now, all of those things are good. We we need to live an obedient life to Christ. We need to believe the true things about Him. And those are powerful foundations in our lives. We need to be gathering. We need to be committed to one another. We need to be worshiping. We need to be practicing our spiritual gifts. But none of those are the center of what it means to be a Christian. At the center should be kind of heart postures, faith, hope, and love. So then this is just how my brain works. I started saying to myself, well, if, if that is for Paul at the core and the heart of what it means to be a Christian, I wonder, imagine there was a reality TV show on my life and there were a bunch of cameras following me for a month and just I managed to live things as naturally as possible. With the cameraman and with the, with the people involved and with, with the people watching the TV show, all three of them, you know, my wife and my kids, um, would they observe my life and go, wow, at the center of his life is his Christian faith. But even more importantly, at the center of his life, there's a faith. Wow, and, and he's, there's so much hope in his life and love. And I don't know if that is always going to be true of me. So then I started thinking about Riverside. I mean, and any church, by the way, on the planet. If God had to observe our meetings and our gatherings, if God had to observe us in our sort of social times together, in our life groups, in our homes when we're alone, would any observer observe our time together and go, wow, at the heart of this church's Christianity is faith and such hope and such love. So that is so challenging to me. And I got to thinking, okay, well, how do I nurture faith in me? If this is true, how do I nurture faith in me? How do I nurture hope in me? And how do I nurture love? And I actually believe the answer is in this text. So I'm going to read verse 5, and it will be on the screen behind me. I wanted to note as a kind of logical knock-on effect here. The faith and love, this is faith in Christ and love for all the saints. The faith in love that springs from the hope that he's thought of for you. Did you see the logical consequence there? The faith and love that springs from the hope that we have here. So it got me thinking, well, okay, if, if hope is almost the space where faith and love are generated, I started asking myself, do I have a big enough hope? 
Because if I've got a small hope, the logical outcome is I'm going to have small faith and small love, right? If I've got a a medium-sized hope, I'm going to have medium faith and love. And if I have a, a large hope, I'm going to have large faith and large love. So the question before me was, was, is our hope big enough? So I've had to ask you this morning, what is, if you're a Christian here this morning, what is your Christian hope? What is your Christian hope? And I know you know the answer is Jesus. You know, but, but if you're honest with yourself, what are you truly hoping in God for at the moment? Now, for many of us, you'll probably find it's got something to do with our present circumstances. Maybe you're hoping God for a breakthrough in something. Maybe you're going through a, a trial, a financial trial or a relational trial or a marriage trial. And you're really hoping God to get you through that. Maybe you're hoping that God will give you a wife. Maybe you're hoping that God will give you a husband or you're hoping that God will give you a kid. Maybe you're hoping that God is going to bring you into a new season of your life. And all of that is good. All of that is good. We need to be coming to Jesus with our hopes. We need to be coming to Him with our needs because God loves meeting us at our point of need and hope. Doesn't mean He always answers our prayers the way we expect Him to, but He loves meeting us there. But if that is the fullness of our hope, man, I'm just hoping God for a breakthrough now. Is that hope big enough? Is that hope big enough to produce faith? Is that hope big enough to produce love? Because what if God gets you through that season? If, if that is our exclusive hope, what most of us are going to do is, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for getting me through this tough season. Put him back in the box. Now I get back to life. Or what if the season persists and the thing that God is trying to do in your life by letting you go through this tough season, maybe is trying to discipline you, maybe is trying to shape you, maybe is trying to nurture fruits of the Spirit like perseverance and long-suffering and all those fun things. Uh, maybe he's trying to kind of get some of the stuff out of you so you can get more of him in you. But if that is the fullness of our hope, and I'm like, I'm hoping for God to get me through the season, but somehow he's not allowing me to get through the season, what do we do with that? See, we need a hope bigger than our circumstances. Because when things are going well, oh, God is good. And when things are going badly, man, I'm angry with him. So we need a bigger hope. A bigger hope to produce this kind of faith in our lives. And this kind of love. Again, small hope equals small faith and love. Big hope equals big faith and love. So then I started thinking, well, how does hope produce faith? Let's start with faith. How does hope produce faith? And again, I actually believe the answer is right here in verse five. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, point A, stored up for you in heaven, point A, and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel, point B. Let's think about that. When Paul's saying here, there's a hope stored up for you in heaven, There is something waiting for you. There is something that Jesus has won for you. There's something that he's wanting to pour into your life and in part in this present life, but in fullness in a future life. And the the more we understand that hope, the more it changes us. When we recognize that when I die or if Christ returns, man, I'm I'm gonna have this new body. I mean, as if this one could be improved upon. Um, there's going to be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. Uh, God is, there's going to be a new creation. 
Uh, everything that, that Jesus won for us, he gives us, we become co-heirs of his inheritance. As I was thinking about the new creation, I was reminded one pastor, he's like, listen, if, if, if Hawaii today is fallen Hawaii, what does new creation Hawaii look like? I mean, can we imagine that? And if, and if what we taste today is, is fallen steak, what does new creation steak taste like? And some of you are saying, but you won't get steak in the new creation because there'll be no more death. And I'm saying, get behind me, Satan. Um, <laughs> but I want to differentiate between hope and a certain hope. See, often the way we use hope in the English language is, I kind of hope it happens. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I hope that it happens. It's kind of like, I'm pretty tired and, and I really hope to get a break soon. I really hope that we can make a plan to get to the beach in the next few months. Don't know if it's going to happen as opposed to, I'm so tired, but we planned a holiday at the beach in two months' time. We've got a certain hope in the rest. We've got a certain hope in the break. Can you see which is far more powerful? One is like it may happen. One is it's going to happen. One is like, I don't know if anything's going to change. The other is I can endure all things because I know it's coming my way. So when the Bible talks about this hope stored up for you in heaven, this is a certain thing. So how do we know it's a certain thing? That's when we go to the gospel. How do we know this, this promise and this inheritance and this new life and this new creation and, and Jesus Christ in our presence in His fullness and us experiencing the greatest of joy and the greatest of love and the greatest of all He's ever want to give us? How do we know that's going to happen? Well, we look at the cross. Because it is at the cross that Jesus beat death. It is at the cross that He beat hell. It is at the cross that He beat sin. It is at the cross that he beat Satan. And we're just kind of waiting for those death blows to, to turn out in finality when Christ returns. So because of the gospel and because of this hope that he stirred up for us in heaven, this is a certain hope for us. So how does it produce faith? So I'm going to try a number of analogies on you and uh, they may or may not help. Uh, but as I was thinking about how this kind of certain hope produces faith in us, I was thinking about for us, I mean, when I rocked up this morning here, I was kind of praying, Lord, are we even going to have power this morning? I mean, I know most of your homes are dark right, right now. And, and for many of us, and I've, I've heard us talk and I, and I understand it, we're kind of looking at our present climate in the country and we're kind of saying, you know, is this it? Is this it? Is this what I want for me? Is this what I want for my future, for my kids? And some of you are saying, I wonder if it's better on the other side of the, of the ocean or wherever. And uh, you start thinking about that. What if I could tell you, now this is pure fiction, so don't believe anything I'm about to say. What if I could tell you, I mean, God told me with absolute certainty that in one month's time, everything we're going through is going to come to an end and South Africa is going to enter an unprecedented season of blessing and prosperity and, and love and, and everyone around the world is going to be so jealous of our nation. Just one month's time. <laughs> oh, let's pray for it. I mean, absolutely, why not? Suddenly you're like, listen, I can deal with uh, frozen food. I can deal with uh, kind of uh, going to bed and not being able to watch Netflix at night. I can deal with some of the difficulties of our nation because I know it's going to change. So what if I said with absolute certainty, it's not going to be a month, it's going to be one year from now. You're going to say, okay, well, that's fine. But, but you know what, if, if I know things are going to change, if it's a certain hope, then I can endure almost anything. What if it wasn't one year, but 10 years? Now, some of you are like making this like a real scenario out in your head. 
But imagine I could say with absolute certainty, in 10 years' time, South Africa is going to enter this unprecedented season of richness and blessing and beauty, and, and we're going to be the true rainbow nation. 10 years' time, okay, well, my kids are going to be you know, 18, okay. But wow, if that's what's waiting for me, we can stick it out, right? Doesn't matter what happens. Let's take it one step further. What if I said, you won't see it in your lifetime? Things are maybe going to get worse before they get better. But in your kids' lifetime and in their lifetime, all our greatest hopes for South Africa are going to come true. I reckon most of us would say, well, that's worth sticking around for. Right? Something about knowing what awaits us, even if it's a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, even if it's for the next generation. Something in that means I get to walk in faith. I get to persevere. I get to trust knowing what's going to happen and the certain hope that I have. Man, I get to endure hardship. I get to endure difficulty because I know it's coming. And in the same way as Christians, guys, we know God wins. We know that. And therefore, we get to walk in faith, not wondering, but knowing. So that hope produces faith in us. Here's another story. Got this from J.D. Greer. He says, uh, imagine coming home and there's an envelope on your kitchen table there and you open up the envelope and in there is a letter from a bank and it's saying, hey, listen, you've got this uh, great uncle you never knew about, but he died and he left his entire inheritance to you, kind of several million euros or something like that. And you do all the checks, you realize this isn't one of those dodgy texts or dodgy emails. And you realize this is true. And it says, all you need to do is drive from uh, uh, your home and you need to drive to the closest bank. And let's just say for argument's sake, that's 10 kilometers away. So you're like, this is real. I can't believe this is happening to me. You get in your car, you, forgot to, you forget to check how much fuel you've got. You get halfway to the bank and your car breaks down. Now here's what you don't do. Turn around and go home. Uh-huh. I really wanted those millions of dollars. No, no, no. You lock your car and you start walking. All right, And even if a dog bites you along the way and, and you dehydrate, I mean, you will leopard crawl all the way to the bank if that is what's waiting for you, right? And guys, in the same way, when we know what's waiting for us, this hope stored up in heaven for you, guarded by Jesus Christ himself, giving us foretastes in many ways in this present world, a guaranteed victory, guaranteed hope. Man, that gives us faith to walk and endure. Why? Because of the hope that we have. So how does that kind of hope produce love in us? Now, admittedly, this uh, analogy, most analogies fall apart. This one's even weaker. Um, Imagine high school, some of you are like, oh, high school, sermon ruined. Uh, so imagine, you know, you're a guy like me and kind of average looking and, and neither here nor there. And um, some of you are like, I don't need to imagine too hard. You know, that is me because that was definitely me. And uh, in high school, there's this girl that everybody thinks is the most amazing girl. And she's, she's drop dead beautiful. And, and she's, she's a solid Christian and, and she lives out her faith in gracious ways. And, and everyone knows that they don't stand a chance with her. And you know for certain you don't stand a chance with her. Now imagine, you know, God comes down to you in a dream and an angel tells you, you are going to marry this girl. And once you realize this isn't a prank, this this is for real. What are you going to do? So next day you'll probably go to school and Joey Tribbiani style, how are you doing? (laughs) Chances are, 
first time up, she'll bat you? Oh, are you going to give up at that point? No, because you know you're going to be with her, right? So you become like a total rash to her in, for the next five, ten years of your life and, and she eventually moves to Cape Town to get away from you and, and all the rest. <laughs> but you know this is going to happen and you persevere because you know God has promised you this is your future wife and even if it happens when you're 35, 45 or 85, man, you just persevere the whole way. But can you see how when we have the certain hope that is won for us by love, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When you realize that God is love, He did that out of love for us, produces love in us. When we realize that the love that we exercise in this world matters for eternity. That maybe I don't see the fruits today. Maybe there are people in my life who are hard to love and maybe I'd never see it in my own lifetime. Maybe I've got kids who are wayward and I really wish they'd come back to the gospel and, and you don't know how that's going to work out. You persevere in love. Why? Because you know it matters. You know there's a much bigger picture and that you know that God wins. And you know that the love that you exercise today matters in eternity. So having this certain hope stored up in heaven for us and the gospel produces such faith and produces such Love in us. I think the only hope big enough to produce this kind of love and faith in us is to be found in the gospel. I don't know if you remember last year, we went through the book 1 Peter. Also, quite fast, but we also went through verse by verse. And we read this verse also early on in the book of 1 Peter. Look at the similarities between what we've just been talking about and this verse. It says this, In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living Hope, a living hope through, how did he do this? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, through the gospel and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. That is the only hope that I know that is big enough. It transcends all of our circumstances and difficulties. That even if I lose my life for the sake of the gospel, I gain Christ and I gain all of his reward. So it's very appropriate now that we come to the table. The table is a symbolic reenactment of the gospel. We don't just do it to be religious. We remind ourselves of Jesus' death and resurrection. We take of the bread and we break it just as his body was broken for us, for our sin. We take of the grape juice representing his blood and we drink it. We literally taste it. Reminding us of the blood that was shed on our behalf for our sin. See guys, here's what I want to end with. For so many of us here, the gospel is that thing I believed in primary school, the thing I believed in high school, the thing that got me saved and I've moved on from the gospel. Our regular practice of coming to the table reminds us that the gospel is not just something we started with. The gospel doesn't just save you, the gospel sustains you. We never graduate from the gospel. The gospel's not just you know, the entrance exam to the university. It's 101. It's 201. It's 301. It's 401. It's ComServe. It's, uh, it, it's uh, um, Masters. It's PhD. It's the rest of our lives. The gospel isn't just a springboard that puts us into the pool. It is the pool itself. It is daily reminding myself 
There is nothing I can do in Christ to make him love me more. And there is nothing that I can do to make him love me less. Because the gospel says that Jesus took, took my sin, not just my past sins, but my sins of yesterday and my sins of today. He takes my sins and I'm not defined by those sins. I'm not defined by the brokenness. I'm not defined by the sins of others. I'm defined like this. When God looks at me, he sees, wow, my son, my daughter, whom I love. The opening, the second verse two of the book of Colossians, to the holy and faithful brothers. We're only holy because of what Christ has done. When I stand here on a Sunday morning and I've had a rough week. The gospel reminds me is I'm not defined by that week. I'm defined by the work of Jesus. His life, his power, his resurrection. And I get to worship Jesus in freedom. The gospel is the only thing powerful enough to save us. And is the only thing powerful enough to change us and transform us. That is why it's absolutely imperative that we are reminding ourselves regularly of the gospel by coming to the table by the way we're going to be celebrating baptism just now as well it's exactly the same thing death my life with Christ's death and my life with his life given to me cleansing me of my sin so I'm going to ask now I'm going to pray and then we're going to come to the table as you come to the table take of the bread take of the grape juice go back to your seat and here's what I want you to do with this reorientate your hope around the gospel it's fine to have other hopes it's fine to have hopes for today it's fine to have hopes for tomorrow don't let those hopes be the only hopes you have in Christ look up see the horizon see kind of the moon in in, in space and see the stars even more behind you in other words look up and see just the, the landscape of the gospel and see the saints that have gone before us and Christ who's gone before us and look up and look and reorientate yourself around the gospel let that become your source of hope for all things I'm going to pray that God will produce faith and love in our hearts so Father we thank you this is a certain hope We're not wondering, we're not guessing. And God, I'm asking that as we come to your table, that this living hope, according to 1 Peter, would grow within us. That wherever we are with regards to our hope in Christ, that that would increase as you breathe upon us here this morning. And I pray that as our hope grows, we would see our faith grow, our perseverance and our love grow, our love for one another, our love for you. So God, give us the gift of hope this morning. Thank you that you made this possible for us in your death, Jesus, and even more in your life as you give your life to us. Church, in your own time, take off the elements, go and pray, reorientate your life around this hope, and then we're going to sing together a gospel song. Again, worshiping God because of the gospel. Amen.